Thank you so much. Good morning. It seems appropriate on a day where Lord's Day and Valentine's Day converge that we take time to consider the whole issue of love from a biblical standpoint. And as we do so, so obviously I'm posing a, a pause here in our study of Second Thessalonians. I was thinking of a passage of Scripture that could deal with the complexities of God's love in relationship to you and to me. And there's a passage of Scripture found in my favorite chapter of my favorite book, and I'd love for you to turn to it. It's Romans chapter 8, where in verse 31, down to the end of the chapter, we find words that are consistent with what Bennett and the team just sang to us concerning. And I want you to notice that this passage is in the context of a powerful, powerful teaching in our relationship to God. I'm going to pick it up in verse 31. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. I want you to ponder the significance of the love that God has for you and for me in these verses and how it works itself out at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in a series of questions now, Paul begins to develop his line of thought with these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, not powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we're going to want to do now is to, on this Valentine's Day, Lord's Day, is to look at some of the serious issues and questions that surround this whole issue of God's love for his people and how, practically speaking, it's going to relate to the way in which you and I go about living our lives before we get. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to open our hearts to what it is you want to say to us. 
Even today, there's a possibility that some of us might be with people who are wrestling with your supposed love. They're questioning it. They're wrestling with it. And they're looking at it through the lens of their own personal experiences and the culture in which we live. And we're going to have to find ways, as Paul did, to pose questions and to draw out from them the issues that they are facing and the difficulties that they are confronting that would cause them to reconfigure the nature of who God is and what his love entails. What we want to do, Father, is to look into your word and get our questions answered. And then minister to others who are raising questions. Now, if there are any, Father, in these services today that are coming and they're struggling, does God care? Is God really involved? Have I done something in my life to turn, have him turn from me? Their lives, their thought processes may be flooding their souls with questions, and they're wrestling, where are the answers? And so we open up your word and seek them out. So, Father, in these minutes together, we're praying once again that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, We've come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Caught my attention when they came walking into my office hand in hand. Twin sisters. Their doctor had asked them to consider coming to talk to me about some of the questions that were being posed in in his office. And so they came, and they were teary-eyed. And you have to ponder now what's going on in their thought processes. They sit down, and it's very clear to me that One of the two does not have long to live, and the other one is experiencing all the heartache, difficulties, and challenges of what it means to be separate from the one who entered this world together with. And it was the question that one of them posed that gave me insight into the big issues that were confronting their lives. Pastor, one of them asked, If God loves us, then why is this happening to us? I'm thinking. Okay, it's in the form of a question. Starts off with a condition. If God loves us. They did not say we know God loves us. If God loves us. They use the us, which means then they're in this thing together. They're posing questions jointly pertaining to something regarding who God is. And they're wanting to know, where can I find the answer? 
Now, I know they love Jesus. I also know that the earth has shaken underneath their feet. And so I say, would you be willing to look at a passage of Scripture with me? And they nod their heads tearfully. So I pull out two Bibles, I put them in their hands, and I, I say, I'd like you to look carefully now at John chapter 11. And they do. And I'm going to read slowly. I want you to process what's going on here. Because in John chapter 11, you and I are told these words. Now a certain man was ill. I pause. You see what it's just said? They nod their heads. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. Notice the sisters here. And they look at one another and they quietly nod their heads. John inserts in verse 2 this observation. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And then adds, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Second time the word ill is used. So in verse 3 we are told, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now I ask one of them to read it back to me. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. There's that word ill again, third time. I ask the question, who's doing the loving here? They pause and they look carefully at verse 3 because the natural assumption would be to say that Lazarus is calling out for help because he loves God. But here's the fascinating thing. In verse 3, you informed and I'm informed Lord, he, speaking of Jesus. Lord, he, Jesus. He whom you love is ill. In other words, in the midst of this threefold emphasis upon illness, crisis within the family unit, it is the love of Jesus Christ now which is affirmed. They're not questioning it. They're not denying it. What they're grappling with is how do you pull together a thought process in our emotional state where we can pull together the idea of God loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, with the crisis we're in. Now, if you've ever wrestled with this whole matter, even on this Valentine's Day of God's love for you, And at the same time, pondering, well, how much does he love me in light of what I've done in my past? Maybe it's what you've said. Maybe there are certain acts that you find yourself repeating in the past, from the past over and over again, wishing somehow, someway, you could hit delete, but it just doesn't seem to disappear. And you're wondering, is God holding that 
against me, and that's why I'm wrestling with, if you love me, then why am I going through this? What we need to do then is to take our questions to the one who brilliantly poses questions as well. Because in the sole matter of the question of love, in chapter 8, beginning of verse 31, through the end of the chapter, you and I will be delivered the goods. Two sets of serious questions about God's love that we need to relate to our everyday personal experiences. Let's check them out. The first flows out of verse 31 through 34. We're going to put it like this, number one. That as we consider God's love, I want you to note with me the judicial questions God poses to us. Because what you will find here is in verse 31 through 34, it's much like sitting in a court, which is not always the most comfortable place to be in. And there are going to be a series of legal questions being posed with regard to where is God in the midst of all this and where am I in relationship to God in the midst of all this. And so you've got to start peeling off the legal issues before you get to the relational issues pertaining to God's love for you and God's love for me. Now it starts off in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And you say, well, Gary, what things are these things? Well, you might remember that just three verses back or so, Paul had written, and we know that for those who love God, there's that word love, but we love God. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And now you're continuously wrestling with that question, okay? It's meant for the good. But I don't feel good. But now what Paul does is that he goes into the deep riches of God's relationship to you. And now what you and I need to do is to go into the deep riches of the way God has related to you and me. And retrieve verse 29 and 30 and apply it to your own life situation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Talking about the future and past tense, good is done. Therefore, he poses now this question, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what do I do with this information in light of the challenges that I have faced? If God is loving, then why am I going through what I'm going through? Paul understands questions. So now he poses the question here, And notice what comes next. If God is for us, who can be against us? Pause. Typically, the believers got that one memorized somewhere along the way in their Christian life experience and kind of breeze through that question. 
But here's the issue. What on earth and why on earth is God for us? If you and I consider the sinfulness of sin, shouldn't it read that God is against us? And if God is against us, then who can be for us? Biblically speaking, that's what you and I might be prone to pose. And so the astounding thing about God's grace is that he takes the for and he takes the against and he flips them on you. That even in the midst of your life situation in the most difficult circumstances that you could possibly ever endure, when you find yourself saying, I wonder if God is against me, what you need to be saying is that life seems to be against me, but God at the same time is working for me. Now, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you begin to ponder the significance of God's love in the four versus against tensions of your own life experience. Now, this culture is such that it wants to define God culturally rather than biblically. And so we have a sanitized, relativized, commercialized view of God on this Valentine's Day. But what the culture fails to do is this. It fails to link God's holiness to love. God's righteousness to God. What do you do with God's justice in relationship to love? You see, without all these other attributes connected to love, we've shrunk God into God is love. And you say, but Gary... That's exactly what the Apostle John wrote on 1 John. And you are absolutely right. That is factually true. That is factual information, but it is not exhaustive information. God is love. God is also infinite. God is eternal. God is unchangeable. Which means it's infinite love. It's eternal love. It's unchangeable love. God in his infinite, eternal, unchangeable nature is all-powerful, which means you've got a very powerful love on your hands here. But also God is just, and so now you're wrestling with, and how do I understand the justice of God in relationship to the love of God when it pertains to the social justice movement of this world in this nation at this time, and I'm grappling with God. You ever been there? Now, if you were raised in a certain religious tradition where you heard a lot about the wrath of God and the justice of God, you would have probably found that some people around you would have they would have thought it's difficult to believe in the love of God. And so when you heard teachings on the love of God come your way, it was such good news. Great news. Wonderful news. This week I I again paged through the 
Haran looking for the love of God. Couldn't find it. They've got a distort view of the justice of God without a comprehension of the love of God. Thus we see what happens in the Middle East. But here the states now, nowadays, if you tell them that God loves them, they're not the least bit surprised. After all, I'm such a lovable person. It's the natural tendency, isn't it, to say in response. But the reality is that God has not separated God's justice from God's love. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, as Paul himself points out to us, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you capture the number of the usages of the word F-O-R, for? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that, we're sa- that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now I'm saying to myself, my word, Highlander, you came into this world an enemy of God. The natural tendency is to be against your enemy. But here it reads, if God is for us, not against us, who can be against us rather than for us? Have you put your for and your against in proper order in this verse and then pondered the significance and the richness of God's love for you, F-O-R? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And now you're beginning to deal with the reality of life, and you're beginning to process the sorts of questions that the twins were posing as they sat down tearfully and asked, if God loves us, then why are we going through what we are going through? These are important questions. We've got to be able to grapple with the foreness of God's love. The story was told that during a crisis in the Civil War, a civilian came to seek out President Lincoln and said, Mr. President, I'm worried that our Lord would be on our side. And Lincoln is said to have replied, that gives me no anxiety at all. The thing I worry about is being on the Lord's side. So now, who is for and who is against? But then in that crisis of Nazism, when Martin Niemöller looked back upon his own personal experience with the prison guards and the likes, he was able to emerge from that POW experience and say, quote, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of his enemies. Now you're beginning to develop the richness of God's love for you and for me. 
because here we find that God himself, via the penmanship of Paul, would be able to say in Romans 5.10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So you take a deep breath at this point, and you say, God's not the enemy of his enemies. God's not an enemy of me. Maybe what I am going through doesn't have anything to do at this point with me being viewed as an enemy of God by God. Maybe there is something else involved here as well, because God is for me, not against me. If I'm saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, maybe it's this cancer that's against me. Maybe it's this job situation that's against me. But I can't confuse my health issues, nor can I confuse my job situation with God. So now, if God is for us, not against us, who can be against us rather than for us, and we continue on with this line of thought as we're thinking about the way in which this legal process is unfolding in the court of the heavens above. And you continue on. Now you take a deep breath, don't you? Because God's not done with the questions. He's got for people who are asking questions. And you and I are hanging daily with people who've got tons of questions, whether they're articulating them or not. So now you get to another one in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, mark this, but gave him up for us all. Now I want you to draw a line between the two fours. In verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And now in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us, you see, all things? He gave Jesus Christ for us. Now, look carefully at this 32 it, does, it says he did not spare his own son. Within the Godhead, there was perfect love experienced within that Godhead for eternity. Father loved the Son. Son loved the Father. Father and Son loved the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit loves Son. Holy Spirit loves Father. There is this mutual, eternal love that is experienced there. Why on earth break up a good thing? Wouldn't the natural tendency be to spare the second member of the Trinity out of your love for the second member of the Trinity rather than give that second member of the Trinity to unloving people who are enemies of God? You see, now we're really thinking. But God's questions have a way of forcing us to do that sort of thing. So now he who did not spare his own son but gave him and True love is sacrificial love. It isn't that Pilate and Herod seized him. It wasn't that the Sanhedrin was able to manipulate the circumstances to get control of him. This was a sovereign act within the divine love. He gave him up. But notice this. You've linked it to 31. For us all. 
God is for us. God gave his son up for us. Then the question's posed. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And when I thought about that concept of such love, my mind went back to Psalm 103, where in verse 11 we're told, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. It's the height of God's love for you. And yet in the next verse of Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the width of God's love for you and for me. Now you've got the height of God's love, and you've got the width of God's love. And what he's doing geographically for you at this point is wanting to show the expansive nature of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable love that this God has as the triune God who did not spare his son, though that second member of the Trinity was experiencing the infinite, eternal, unchangeable love within the Godhead, but God was willing to break up this whole experience for the sake of sending the Son into this world to die for those who do not love God. Back in September, some of our family members, we were standing in the war room down beneath the streets of London. And I was watching this video that was showing its uh, various speeches of Churchill and what he had to say to the people in the midst of World War II. Never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few he had said to the, regarding the military of Great Britain in the midst of the Nazi onslaught. And I took a step back at that point, and I thought to myself, I wish I could rephrase that. Instead, I would be prone to say, never in the history of humankind have so many owed so much to one. that God, via the second member of the Trinity, entered into the ultimate battle war of life and laid down his life, Christ did, so that you and I might live. And there is the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. But God shows his love for us in verse 8 of chapter 5. And again, that little word, F-O-R, in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us, F-O-R. If you're going to understand the book of Romans, you better do a careful study of F-O-R. And begin to think about humanity against God, God for us, not against us. As Niemöller put it, God is not the enemy of his enemies, and he sends the second member of the Trinity who's experiencing an eternal love relationship within the Godhead to die for those whose natural tendency is not to love the one who loves. This is astounding. As you're pondering love on Valentine's Day. 
So you're connecting your fours. But now you keep working it through and you get to verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, we're talking judicial. We're talking the courtroom of God at this point. And now an accusation is being made against you. An accusation is being made against me by the evil one who wants to position himself within their court. And where is love in the midst of all that? But listen, you and I might remember if we were around together a few months ago where in the Advent series there was a passage in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 where a man by the name of Joshua, not Joshua the successor to Moses, but Joshua who at that time of Zechariah's writings was the high priest. He's standing here. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, which is a title in the Older Testament for Jesus. But listen. And Satan's standing at his right hand. Satan's got this way, you see, of trying to counterfeit Jesus. So Satan is standing at the right hand. For what purpose? To accuse Now, you and I know there is no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. The challenge is, is to match that with the accusation that is being posed with regard to those who experience no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What do you do then with the accusation? And the same thing holds true in that final day. Because in that final day, you and I are told in Revelation chapter 12 that that accuser is still at work. And I heard in chapter 12 verse 10 a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. I need somebody. I need somebody to counteract that accusation. And Jesus counteracts that accusation with the words that God gives to Paul. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there you have more questions to those who ask questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then powerfully, an answer in verse 33 is given. It is God who justifies. And you say, well, Gary, I know that throughout the book of Romans it talks about that, but help me out, refresh my mind. Well, we're talking about the courtroom here. And there's an accusation here. What do I deal with this whole issue of the tension between no condemnation and ongoing accusation? I need to embrace that word justification. To be justified means that in a court of law one is declared righteous. Not that we've been found righteous. When we have been justified by faith, It is not because we ourselves are righteous, but rather we are declared righteous. It is a legal term, a judicial term. 
when we are justified by faith, what we've got to understand here is that the doctrine, the teaching of justification by faith says that we are justified by God's grace. Because not of our works, but rather because of Christ's work. It is based upon what God saw in Christ and credited to our account. And so now, the next time you are feeling this ongoing sense of accusation, and here are the twins, and they're in my office, and the tears are rolling down the cheeks, and one is asking if God loves us. Why are we going through what we're going through? And I'm sensing self-condemnation. And furthermore, I'm dealing with ongoing accusation. And they're wrestling with, did I do something in my past to bring this on in the present to make God stand against me? Where's the love? And then they need to be reminded that God is for us. Therefore, relatively speaking, who can be against us? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul delivers the goods and begins to recite the various ways in which God for you is being demonstrated. Where in verse 34, who's to condemn? We're still in that court, and the, and the judge is listening in. And then the response, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, and I want you to notice the next word, for, F-O-R, for us. Now, you're beginning to pull this whole thing together. We're in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 32, gave him up for us all, the cross, And now you and I are looking at verse 34 where intercession is taking place. For us, you have gotten out this trio of fours that are being revealed in the way in which God loves you, even in the midst of the accusations and the dilemmas and the conflicts of love as it relates to life. And you take a deep breath here at this point once again, and you're thinking about what Christ Jesus has done and how it relates to you and to me. Again from the Civil War, Clarence McCartney told this story of an elderly man whose son had been convicted of crimes in the army, sentenced to be shot, came to plead with Lincoln. This was an only son, so the case was appealed to Lincoln, which was not unusual in that day and age of this country. But he had just received a telegram from Butler which read, Mr. President, I beg you not to interfere with the court-martials of this army. You're going to destroy all discipline in the army. We're told that Lincoln handed the old man the telegram, and he watched the shadow of disappointment and sorrow come over the man's face as he read the message. But then... Lincoln, we are told, said, Butler or no butler, here we go. And he wrote out an order and handed it to the father. And the man read the order, which was as follows. Job Smith is not to be shot until further orders from me, Abraham Lincoln. The disappointment just overwhelmed the father at this point, And he said, why? 
I thought it was going to be a pardon. You could order him to be shot next week. Mr. Lincoln responded, Evidently, you don't understand my character. If your son is never shot until an order comes from me, he'll live to be as old as Methuselah. Now you look at that. Because there's all kinds of accusation going on that we may not fully understand. Even Jesus turned to Peter after Peter had delivered a very powerful statement about who Christ is. And we would tell Peter that Satan sought to sift him like wheat. There was a Job who was going through things that Job could not possibly process or understand because of what was occurring in the court of the heavens. And so we look at this now as we consider God's love. I want you to note within that court of the heavens, note first the judicial questions God poses to you and me. They're there in verse 31 through 34. But here's the second of the set of questions in verse 35 through 39. That is, you and I, as we consider God's love, note secondly the relational questions God that God answers for us. And you pick it up in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now some of us come walking into this sanctuary, this building, these multiple services today, and we've been wounded by separation. A woman is a widow, separated from the one she married. There's a parent who's looking at an estranged relationship with a son or a daughter and feels separated from the one they raised. There's that individual who experienced a difficult divorce and knows firsthand what this whole issue of separation entails. There's somebody who's been released from a job and is now separated from the source of their income. This is tough stuff in a world such as ours. And so perhaps now tears rolling down your cheeks on any given morning, you're saying, okay, what about this whole issue of separation? I am still feeling the sense of self-accusation. What do I do? If, is God truly for me? Or is he against me? But don't confuse God with life. Life may work against you while God is still working for you. And you continue on. He asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And now Paul, almost speaking autobiographically at this point, as he takes us through some of the experiences that he himself had confronted, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness or danger or sword question. And then what does he do? Just like Jesus on that cross did, goes to the Old Testament, gives himself guidance, We need to go to the scriptures to get guidance in the midst of life's challenges. As it is written, he now retrieves. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. As he's thinking about the increasing level of persecution that will take place throughout the Roman Empire. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then with this very powerful definitive no in verse 37, he is able to make this statement in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Now, you take the 35 verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You match it now to the 37 verse. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And now what we find is that Paul is helping us to view those trials not as weapons to fight against, but rather tools to work with. You look at this, and then all of a sudden, once again, he pulls out the extremes. Maybe you faced extremes in your life. And says, for I am sure, he's convinced, these are certainties, that neither death nor life, have you embraced that? Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. What has he done? He's just taken all the extremes of life, condensed them into this phrasing. And notice what he says here. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Take that word separate in verse 39. Link it back to the question he posed in verse 35. The question, what was it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Gives you all the possibilities in 38, 39, and then says, in essence, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, you see. Our Lord. I remember that time when I came across this from Peanuts. Linus says of his security blanket, only one yard of outing flannel stands between me and a nervous breakdown. But then I'm reminded that the basis of my internal security is my eternal security. And did you notice how this chapter begins and how this chapter ends? It begins, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It ends... There is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no separation. The question I pose to you is, are you in Christ Jesus? As the worship team is coming forward, let's look to the Lord in prayer. we begin to see the significance of all this, Father, and the way in which you pose questions to get us thinking. The judicial questions and the relational questions, they combine in such a way that the tendency is to begin to take ourselves to some form of self-accusation until we realize that the accusations and the condemnation and all the other things Jesus dealt with through his trials and death on the cross so that we can say you love me so much there is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. You love me so much there is no separation for me from you because I am in Christ Jesus. Jesus took that on the cross and when he said my God, my God why have you forsaken me? He did that for me. We praise you, Father. We thank you. 
And we give you all the praise and glory for the love you demonstrate that Christ died in our place for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.